0: Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Naherne. In 2016, we celebrated 20 years of Earth Matters on the air and 40 years of 3CR Community Radio. Today, we're delving into 3CR's rich archive to bring you an interview with trade unionist Jack Mundy. Jack talks about the tumultuous era of the green bans and how rank-and-file unionists in the Builders' Labourers Federation, or the BLF, took control of their union and forged links with the broader community. Here's Jack Mundy speaking on 3CR's City Limits program in 1999.
1: Jack, what events led you to become involved in unionism and politics in Sydney in the 60s?
2: Oh, in the 50s, actually. Uh, the that's 50s. how old I am. Um, I came down from far north Queensland to play rugby league, which is a non-Australian rules football code. And, and uh, in the early 50s for Parramatta, I became in, involved in unionism because... Uh, I uh, went into the building industry, it was a very rough industry. The union leadership was, uh, worked uh, in tandem with the um, master builders and um, I became involved that way.
1: Right. So what were conditions like for a BL when you first came to Sydney?
2: Pretty horrendous. I mean, I started working in the building industry in the late fifties, about 57 and um, And we formed a group called the Rank-and-File Committee, which had the aim of um, winning control for the rank-and-file against a very corrupt union. And um, in one year, I had 17 jobs. I got, no sooner would you commence on a job, than you, they'd pick your head out and they'd sack you. And um, so it was very traumatic years and a a strange aspect to the building industry because when I commenced in the industry, the highest building in Sydney was 150 feet. In fact, there was a limit of 150 feet. So a 13-storey building was the biggest building in Sydney. And then they lifted the height limit and the sky became the limit. And uh, ironically, it was that that brought more and more workers together in the city and uh, the rank and file gathered strength. We knocked over the very corrupt leadership. And when we won power, we set about a number of things that were different to most other unions. We set about the idea that all union officials should get paid the same as the workers on the job. We fought for the right of women to work in what was then an all-male enclave. We had migrants put on the... um, books as uh, officials and at all delegates conferences and mass meetings we had six or eight of the main uh, nationalities address their members and so we sort of broadened out the whole approach and we then in the 60s fought to quote civilize the industry because as the buildings went up in one year there were 14 dogmen killed in the city because the narrow streets and wind channels, wind tunnels and so we fought for a more dignity for building workers and to quote civilise the industry and I think that won the confidence of the workers. The workers could see that we weren't just in it for ourselves and another very controversial decision we made was uh, that all Union officials should have a limited tenure of office two terms uh, and after two terms they should relinquish office uh, from full-time work for one term at least before being eligible for re-election. In hindsight, I think this was a bit too advanced because it alienated not only right-wing union officials but left-wing union officials. And whereas the rank and file thought it was a great idea in the sense it proved that the union leadership was concerned about The workers are not using union officialdom as a stepping stone to a job in parliament, or, if you like, to defect a job for the employers, or being appointed to the industrial courts, etc. So I think it was those sort of things that made the builders' labourers a different sort of union.
1: The New South Wales BLF were at the forefront of social change during this time, and there were there were so many actions that you you took part in and the rank and file workers took part in with community residents. Um, but before getting into that, I was just wondering, when did you start this sabotage of, um, industrial sites? I was really interested to see how that came about with knocking the walls down and things like that.
2: I don't know whether the word sabotage is is appropriate. What we put forward was that we had made a democratic decision to go on strike. It was about civilising industry and lifting up the workers' wages. And the employers, because of the scattered nature of the building industry, where you've got hundreds and hundreds of jobs, uh, in the main, all the city jobs and the metropolitan areas of Wollongong and Newcastle were unionised. But if you get out, right out in the wide suburbs, well, they weren't all. And so what the employers tended to do was to try and use non-union labour to break down the conditions and we said we were on strike and therefore we'd made a democratic decision to go on strike and they were deliberately trying to usurp that by using scab labour and what we said we'd occupy the site and if any damage occurred to the property of the employer it rested with the owners of the building that was using scab labour so we were defending the democratic right Employers, of course, and the Askin government, a very right-wing Tory government in New South Wales, very pro-development, used it as saying, well, here's anarchy gone mad, the union's running over things here. But we were saying we're endorsing and supporting the rank-and-file decision that this industry is closed. And some damage occurred to sites. And, of course, then the tabloid newspaper would take it up and with headline news about uh, Sydney being trump- trampled underfoot by the builders' labourers, that sort of terrible exaggeration. And uh, I think it played a part in, in alienating a lot of people against us at that stage. That's why it's very interesting later on. I mean, uh, we were vilified for the action then. But later on, when we, after the Green Band period, well, we were well and truly vindicated because that civilizing the union and giving the workers dignity allowed us then to embark on wider issues of social and ecological concern. So had we not cleansed the union and civilized the industry, we would never have been able to get the workers to take a more advanced action on ecology and on the environment.
1: Just on that, I was wondering, Was there a conflict of interest in workers' jobs and holding up all that development in Sydney at that time?
2: I think, well, of course, at that stage, the unemployment position was not as bad as it is today. But there's always a conflict on the question of jobs and the environment. And in the main, Mm -hmm. the forces of reaction have been able to put forward a phony... Scenario saying you've got to choose quote jobs or the environment Whereas of course we said we want both. We want jobs and the environment. We want socially useful jobs Why should we build more, more and more high-rise building when there was something like 10 million square feet of unleaded office space? And yet you had 55,000 people waiting on the housing emissions list for housing emission homes so, we argued, aggressively again, that money should be diverted from useless, high-rise office buildings, many of it standing empty for years, and moved over into areas of socially useful production of buildings that could house people. And a couple of examples, for example, in Willamaloo, which is looked upon as the oldest suburb in Australia, just down from the central business district in Sydney they were going to extend the high-rise right down there and build millions of dollars of high-rise development. And we put a ban on that, and we argued that it should be for people to live in, that working-class people should not be forced 30, 40 miles out of Sydney. And Willamaloo is now is a classic example of what we did, because there, right in the heart of Sydney, you've got low-income people being able to have affordable use that word, housing, whereas uh, the old, the old working-class areas like Paddington and Glebe and Balmain have been well and truly gentrified. And where they were the working-class areas, that's now certainly middle-upper class have moved into those areas. So I think Woolloomooloo was an example of the argument that we were concerned to link social issues, what we're doing with our own labor. Whereas before there was a tendency to say, well, all the workers should be concerned about was the hip pocket, was wages, wages and conditions. And we argued that in a modern society, uh, wider issues, quality of life issues uh, should become a part of the union's concern.
1: What was the view of the union on slum clearance um, of working class homes to build commissioned flats for public housing?
2: Well, it, it's uh, for those that know Sydney, it's almost uh, unbelievable now to think that in the 50s and 60s, early 60s, Paddington, which is built on the hills, the hot undulating area, which is now a working-class area, was going to be all flattened and uh, and high-rise development put in. The same thing was going to happen with the rocks. So I think that the movement of the time brought together... Uh, people who felt that they had some rights. like uh, I think that the union becoming involved in social issues meant that people who were fighting against leaving the rocks or leaving Woolloomooloo had an ally. And so you had a strange coming together of working-class homeowners or renters together with a union who, who were prepared to fight for them. And at the same time, you had environmental issues like uh, Kelly's Bush, which is in really a a really flash suburb of of Sydney, Hunter's Hill, where women went down in front of a bulldozer to save the last remnant of rainforest on the Parramatta River. And as a very last resort, they came to us on the basis they heard that the builders labourers were saying, we should be concerned about things wider than economics and it's now history we came together and the middle upper class women together with the rough you and builders laborers saved kelly's bush and i think this had a tremendous appeal to people across the whole spectrum because it was a genuine coming together of working class and middle class in action about the environment and also before that time There was a tendency to look upon the environment as being nature conservation, being forests, rivers, lakes, barrier reef, etc. And what was shot home in the Greenbound movement was that we are, Australia, one of the most urbanised countries on earth. If you take Geelong and Melbourne, Sydney, Wollongong and Newcastle, the Gull Coast and Brisbane, you've got 70% of Australians living in three great urban areas. So the built environment became a very important aspect. And uh, as the um, prominent biologist Paul Ehrlich said when he came, he couldn't believe that you could have an alliance of unions and environmentalists because it was so alien to things that he had experienced in the United States where where big businesses set one against the other and said, you're natural allies, uh, natural enemies. He had them together and he explained it as Heath said. It was the birth of urban environmentalism, as against nature conservation. So, I think they're the sort of trailblazing things that the the Green Band movement did, and the and the reason it did. I think we've traced it through that you had a union that were just all working, all very most of them, most of us hadn't even had a formal education, and yet because of the circumstance of a corrupt union before us, we're able to reach out and 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 bridge that link that made the Green Band movement possible. It was a support we had. Like on the one hand we had many uh, people from the uh, employer, naturally the employers were against us. Askin government was very hostile. Uh, We also had um, some union of the right-wing union officials. They were saying things like quote, the builders labourers are going too far shouldn't be saving heritage buildings. You know? Like They were saying all these things. Well, we responded by saying that anything that impinges upon the workers' rights, they've got the right to do it about. It's not only wages and conditions. And I think they were the things that, that, that attracted a lot of people, some of whom for example, were liberal voters. On the one hand, we had right-wing union officials uh, criticising us for doing these things. On the other hand, we had small liberal people in the Democrats or the, the, in those days there wasn't a Democrat party there was a, a Gordon Barton's Australia party those people coming on side and saying look normally we're against unions but we find that you know, saving fig trees in the botanical gardens, saving heritage buildings, saving workers homes, well we find ourselves on side with the union so that was the sort of dichotomy we had that split the normal left-right division. You're
0: listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. And we're hearing an archival interview with Jack Mundy from the New South Wales BLF about the radical history of the union and the emergence of the green Bands. I wanted to ask.
1: Um, there was other social movements involved, and I believe that there was a pink ban at some stage. Can you tell us about that? The pink ban that was. Well, still...
2: the, I remember the blue ban on. The Macquarie
1: on... University pink ban.
2: Oh, of course. Well, there was also a blue ban down on Lake Pedder. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, the other thing that I've omitted to say is that because of the times, because of the Vietnam War, apartheid support for our own, our own Blacks, for example, we were the first union to bring down Dexter Daniels and uh, Captain Major and took them around the building sites. We The tent embassy was set up in Canberra with our union, a couple of other union support. So we were involved in all those sort of things as well. And we also, as you made the point, women's social liberation, the very fact we had women working as leaders in the builders labourers. But the other one to happened in, 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 uh, in the Macquarie University was that G- Jeremy Fisher was kicked out of the Rod- Robert Menzies College solely because he was a homosexual. And the builders' laborers, who were then building a big part of the extension, stopped work and demanded that he be reinstated, and they won the case. At the same time, Women's Social Liberation, Anne Curthoys and Elizabeth Jacker, were fighting for a women's social liberation course at Sydney University. Again, there was more development there. Again, the workers stopped work on that job and forced the university authorities to introduce the course. And that course was introduced. The first course on women's social liberation was at Sydney University with Elizabeth Jacker and and Jean Curfoy. So, yeah, well, well, it was probably in this interview, which is too short to traverse the whole lot (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, I think the important thing, of course it was an exciting time, it was a time of change. And I'm not trying to make out that the Builders' Labor Union was miles ahead of any other union. What I'm saying is that they responded to the times. They responded to the calls of other people. It, I want to say it wasn't the intellect of the union leaders that made the change. The main thing you can say, they responded to people who came to us. And then through linking up together, we all were educated together.
3: The book Green Band's Red Union has brought together a whole new generation of people to understand um, what happened or hear more about what happened with the New South Wales BLF that that perhaps didn't know um, and weren't around at the time. In that, Norm Gallagher was was, um, quoted as saying some pretty harsh words about yourself and and the BLF and particularly around that whole um, notion of alliances with perhaps what might not have been seen as traditionally working class kind of uh, allies did you ever have any doubts about the direction you were heading in during that time
2: well i think when you're involved in in so many struggles of course you've got doubts not about the overall political scenario because you're involved in so many fights uh, you haven't got time to work all those out but the learning process that we received through the broad range of people and the struggles we were in whether it's anti apartheid vietnam whether it's the green movement convinced us that grassroots action and people's action was was the most important thing and um, so no, there wasn't any doubting we didn't have time anyway to worry so much about that if we if we talk I don't think we should spend too much time talking about no. "quote Gallagher-Mundy" mm. thing because it is true for younger people. They should know that Gallagher and, Mo- and Mundy fought many fights together, and it was only in the latter stage when uh, he or his philosophy or the particular line of Marxism-Leninism took a stand that we were wrong and petty bourgeois and darling of the trendies. "Quote, quote, quote." That that uh, we come apart. So I think for anyone having a historical look at the builders' laborers, for much of the time, uh, Mundy and Gallagher and the unions, New South Wales and Victoria, fought together. Uh, in Melbourne, we've seen city league being built. We've recently seen the bulldozers and the um, and the chainsaws in Royal Park converting it into a into a Commonwealth Games facility. We've had Albert Park. Now, in each of these cases, the community groups have gone to the unions and said, we'd like you to support us. But they haven't had that support. How do you feel about that now? Well, I mean, the reason I'm in Melbourne now is the request of Earthworker, And I think that they're on the right line of trying to build alliances between the green movement and the workers' movement, the union movement. but because of the low level of development, I think it'd be probably wrong for them to to rush. Well, I'm again I'm being bloody, uh, I'm being a, an advisor. Here, but I think it'd be wrong for them to rush into immediacy and take action. I think that they've got to. It's a fledging organisation. I think it's got to build itself up a little bit. Uh, just digressing, I think one of the weaknesses of the Greenbound movement in New South Wales is that we're a mile out in front and in some ways we isolated ourselves a bit mm-hmm. things like limited tenure of office and others didn't help much i might add but because uh, most junior officials wanted life tenure a bit better if they could organize it mm-hmm. but i mean uh, the, the the very fact that i think that we i think that the earthwork should earth workers should try and build those alliances and maybe at a l- later stage i mean i think to move into i've only heard about the development at uh, at Royal, P- Royal Park is it? Mm. Yeah. Well it'd be terrific if the union movement was advanced enough to do that. It would appear to me they're not. Which you did in fact um, in Sydney eh? but which you did in Sydney of course you saved the park up there. But um, well, we, we did it many times but I, I'm saying when you look back we were also, let's face it, I mean the, the history of the green band movement in New South Wales when they couldn't bribe or coerce us and we were offered millions of dollars to lift those green bands they then used a part of the union movement, mm. to knock us off. Just 25 years later to finish up with, uh, I'm, I'm sure the unions would now say, look, it was okay then in the 70s when there was plenty of employment, lots of work. These days, jobs are paramount. We have to get jobs for our workers regardless of what they are. How do you answer that? Well, because there was only one union that did it back then either. I mean, it's not true that uh, there was you know, relatively full employment. There wasn't full employment. There was relatively full employment. But you still made sacrifices. Those workers... Were consulted and they made sacrifices at that time. So, I mean, I think you've got to adjust to each period. And that's why I think now you'd have to argue for, quote, shorter working week. I mean, I think it's outrageous that you, you're working, got enterprise agreements, 48 and 60 hours a week. while well, you've got a millionaire employed. If we had a 35 yeah. hour week, well, then you could employ those million people. So, so we've missed out there somewhere. But I think the union movement has got to be more creative in what it does and not just reactive to the employers.
3: Obviously, the rank and file and the community were very important in your campaigns and making alliances between the union and the community. And what kind of options do you, and prospects do you think there are in 1999 for those kind of, uh, of alliances to be built?
2: I, th- I think they're very numerous, the potential. They're very... The problems of society uh, are manifest, aren't they? I mean, global warming is there. Uh, It's fashionable at the turn of the century to talk about the new century. Well, now, when we look at the the fact of life, we've got four times as many people as we had in 1900. We've got more people in the world living in poverty now than the entire population 100 years ago. And yet you've got the enormous extremes on the other side, terrible riches... You know all the things we know about so i mean the the need for community action linking with union action the potential is unlimited and i think unless unions do this they will wither on the vine if they just get in the the plight of what usa unions have been in fact now usa unions have improved somewhat from a very low level and they're reaching out i think that we've got a better history here after all the progressive unions in this country have always been strong on peace and war like Vietnam War and, and the Depression, uh, the evictions even in the, in the 20s and 30s. So the progressive section of the union has got a good record of struggle. But of recent times, particularly in that last 20 years, it's slipped down alarmingly. And I think there's got to be a resurgence of militancy and linking, fighting the class struggle, as Kevin said, with taking a class struggle up, exposing just how profitable they companies are at the same time, reaching out to other organisations who are suffering very much in the, in the, in the growth of mad globalisation, people who are suffering out there, there's a lot of allies can be built for the union movement.
0: You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Naherne. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au Earth Matters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the programme out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri country. You can contact us on 03. Nine four one nine eight three seven seven via email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or on our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast
3: produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.